0: Welcome to my passion project, The Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over one million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is David, the ex-CEO of Just Eat. In 2006, he joined a tiny startup from Denmark and in 2013, he became the global CEO. In 2014, David took the company public, achieving an incredible 1.5 billion market cap, and he was awarded Entrepreneur of the Year. During David's four years as the CEO, Just Eat experienced hyper growth, growing from 100 million in revenues to 550 million. In the last year, Just Eat sold 170 million takeaways to 20 million customers globally, and they had 80,000 restaurant partners. In this episode, David speaks about his first entrepreneurial venture at age 11, how Just Eat changed over the 12 years he spent there, and how he saved his marriage by resigning as the CEO. David, where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in South Wales in the sort of late seventies and through the eighties, post miner strike, in a little valley town, uh, or relatively small valley town, maybe fifty thousand people called Cumbrian, which is sort just about twenty minutes from Cardiff.
0: And how was it like growing up there?
1: It was quite a tough uh, neighbourhood, I guess. Is the is the uh, unromantic uh, picture to um, to sort of explain because it was post industrial minor strike, so it was you know, Wales, South Wales was an industrial area with steelworks and coal mines. And so you know, in the late 70s and early eighties, as you probably know, there's a lot of industrial strikes in that area because Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher's government was shutting down a lot of the old industries. And so there's high unemployment and I guess quite a lot of social unrest. So it was quite a quite a tough neighborhood and and you know I grew up in sort of a single parent family, you know, quite a humble sort of council a state area so it was you know it was um if I look if I look at it now what I from what I know today I would say it was a pretty humble modest background but at the time you know you don't know what you don't know and I you know we had great neighbors I had lots of great friends I love school so you know it was uh, I look back on my childhood pretty fondly but if I if I look at it objectively I uh, it was it was I guess it was relatively um relatively tough but I think growing up in a place like that you know with a real strong sense of community albeit it's quite a tough area in terms of opportunities and employment and, and maybe positive role models, mm. you know, nevertheless, you know, it was, it was, it was happy. I enjoyed it. it was, I had great mates.
0: And did you get drawn into business to some extent during your you know childhood and um, during your teenage years, or did you, did you somehow encounter entrepreneurship early on?
1: Yeah, I did actually, Timo. So I, so it's one of those sort of, I don't know if it's a cliche, but I was very driven and I always wanted to start my own company. And my mum worked in the local supermarket and she regularly used to say to me, she's very encouraging, but she would say, look, love, we haven't got any money. You need to have also have realistic expectations in life as well as it's good to have ambition, but hmm. there's no point being unrealistic. So I kind of always did want to do my own thing and have my own business. So when I was, believe it or not, when I was 11, I went to the local newsagent shop because, you know, it was, obviously, my mom worked hard, but you know, supermarket wages don't. And with three brothers, there wasn't tons of free cash going around. So I, 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 one just got a paper round, as lots of kids do, mm. and uh, it was like three pounds a week. And I was like, "This is terrible!" Like three times a week, and I'm like, <laughs> even though I was eleven, I thought this is just rubbish. So then, I, and, I, and I was delivering 150 papers, and they were, the papers used to cost 50 pence. So I <sighs> hang around. I'm delivering 150 papers. Sort of fifty pence a go. <laughs> uh, obviously, it's like I'm delivering seventy-five pounds worth of newspapers, and I'm getting three pounds. This is just terrible. Doesn't so, feel great, yeah. Yeah. So I went to my I went to my granddad, and he uh, lived in the same street. And I said, you know, "Grandpa, if I go and I think if I can, we just buy the newspapers ourselves from the local W. H. Smiths at the old days Smiths used to sell wholesale newspapers, and I'll go and knock all the doors in the, my neighbourhood, and and um, and I'll, get, and I'll just deliver the newspapers direct. And my granddad wow. was a really cool guy, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, of course." And so we went we at W.H. Smith's. he opened a, an account in his name, and I started buying newspapers direct from W. H. Smith, and within about a year I had about, I can't remember, 175 houses, and I was delivering newspapers, and I started making it was quite good money. I remember I was giving my mum like 20, <laughs> 25 pounds a week when I was 11, 12, which doesn't sound a lot, but it Wow no, it's incredible. Carpet the groceries. <laughs>
0: That is so incredible. And what what did it teach you for later on?
1: It probably gave me, which is, I think, a strong sense of hard work doesn't kill you. And I think mm. what's often underestimated as entrepreneurs, when people talk about entrepreneurs, especially when they've had some success, is it can all seem very glamorous and very rewarding. But I think if you ask most entrepreneurs, the first, I think, two to six, seven years of building a company, and I don't think it necessarily gets easier, but you know, just you can relax a bit when you can see the companies on a path to success in terms of the stress of it also potentially being a failure in mm. the early years. I think what it taught me was hard work doesn't kill you. And I, I I kind of got my work ethic, I think, from quite a young age, probably from my grandparents. Mm. My grandfather was a very hardworking guy, worked into his 90s. And and that, I think, you know, I used to go to school and I would obviously go and do my paper round. And I, and I enjoyed it, frankly, because I, I loved talking to people. So the second thing it sort of taught me I think was you know talking to your customers and listening to your customers and find out what they want for example I found out you know doing this paper around that the guy the local news at the local shop you know he they said one of our big problems is the guys you don't ever deliver at the same time so we never know when the newspaper's coming so I got very disciplined about you know when I was going to deliver so they knew what time of the paper would be arriving mm-hmm. so I could disrupt some of the things that were not very good in the process for those local residents and. So I think it probably taught me two things really. Hard work doesn't kill you, and and secondly, to also listen and talk um, to your customers about what's not good about your competition and try and do it a little bit better. And I had that paper round actually all the way till I was 18. So until I left home at 18 to go to university in London, I I kept that paper round. It was a, it was a nice little profitable venture at the time. It doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it for for us and for me personally, it just enabled me to. You know, buy things that you know my mum would not have be been able to afford to buy for me, whether it was you know CDs or new football mm. boots and stuff like that. So it was it, it was kind of handy, it was a nice little learner.
0: <laughs> I love it. This is this is incredibly powerful. Thanks for sharing. So you said you then went to London. What what did you study?
1: I studied law and business, which I, I if I'm honest, I didn't really want to do. I wanted to study geography, but my mum was always worried about jobs and work, mm-hmm. and probably a bit of a product of our environment. So my brother, my my older brother had gone to London the year before to study medicine, and my mum was like, like I, "I said I want to study geography." Mum went, "Oh, love, what are you going to do if you finish university with a geography degree? And you know, mm. I, you, you need to do something that's going to lead to a job and work." And I guess in that sense, you know, she was just worried. I guess or conservative in in making sure I did something that she felt would lead to a productive, I guess, career. But I I got to be honest. So I, I did a law and business degree, but. I, a part of me's always regretted it a bit because I, you know, no maximum respect to all the lawyers out there, but I, I didn't really enjoy uh, my law degree. I, f- I found it pretty dry and pretty hard going. I, mm. I, I finished the degree and, and graduated, but um, I knew pretty much, I think from about the end of the second semester that I didn't want to be a lawyer uh, for a career, but but I met some great friends for sure. and I loved And I loved the social side and I played a lot of sport, which I always enjoy. So you know, I enjoyed university, but looking back at it now, if I was going to spend three years studying something, I, I wish I'd done something I was passionate about. And I was always really interested in geography and, and particularly plate tectonics. So I would have probably focused my energy in that. And I don't think it does you any harm, because in reality, as we all know now, it's far better to study something that you're probably passionate about than necessarily follow this sort of vocational route. But back in the early 90s, and with a Sort of grown up in a sort of post-industrial South Wales, sort of single-parent mm-hmm. family, it probably felt a bit risky to go and do, you know, a degree that perhaps wasn't going to lead to a job, mm-hmm. or perception that it wouldn't lead to a job.
0: And I know you're you're really passionate about rugby. Did you play rugby at uni?
1: Ever since I can remember, Timo, I was um, my grandfather was a local finance director of a rugby team. So I can remember from the age of three and four going to watch rugby with him wow. and being a ball boy and and then playing from the age of about nine and then playing in school and playing club rugby in South Wales and then obviously being Welsh, supporting the national team and then going to university, played rugby. And I played rugby until I was about 33, 34. So I played for my local team when I moved up to London and England and then, and about, about 33, 34, I think I broke my collarbone for about the third mm. time playing rugby and that was the... End of my uh, a non-glorious rugby career, but I, I loved every minute of it. It was it's, it's a great sport and has a great culture, I think, and great values as a sport. So I really enjoyed it.
0: Do you feel like rugby has taught you about you know team building and culture, and, and did, did you learn from it you know for your future career?
1: I did, Timo, and it, and to me, it wasn't like one of those tenuous. Oh yeah, you know, I, I there's a, there's a connection between sport and. And business mm-hmm. and all the rest of it I, I don't think it's tenuous at all I think in leadership good leadership in any environment is good leadership so I learned I think probably three great things from rugby one is you've got to work out how to get the best from 15 teammates all of which that are different all of which have a different role to play in a rugby team and if you don't work out how to get the best from them you're not gonna be a very good rugby team mm-hmm. secondly I learned that you've got to trust people because in a rugby team, you know everyone has a different contribution. to make depending on your position, and you need to trust your guys you're playing with to do their job. And you don't need to interfere with them and tell them what to do. You need to trust them and support them as best you can in order to have a successful outcome. And then thirdly, you know, for me as a rugby, I, I captained. I think every rugby team I played in, I think at some point, I probably for most of my playing career, I, I was I was sort of captain of the team. And you know, I, I enjoyed that responsibility. I enjoyed having the responsibility to try and motivate and I enjoyed the responsibility to try and sort of set a direction and to, you know, to, I guess, support, um, and have a bigger role outside of just playing for myself. Um, and I think that sense of, yes, I've got to do my best and do my job here, but actually there's a bigger picture, which is how do we all have success as a team? I think that played quite nicely into some of the behaviors I tried. I think, you know, um, um, to do as a CEO because all oh, well and good, you know, you're doing a good job, but if you're not helping your colleagues succeed, then actually you're probably not a great person to have in the team.
0: Yeah. It's such a powerful point. Fascinating. And you then joined Coca-Cola, I think after university, how was that like?
1: Yeah, I loved it actually. I, I really loved co I joined. as was a graduate at 21 and, um, and the reason why I loved it, I look back on it is it was just a great company to learn because they had a fantastic training scheme. I mean, I don't know how much they invested in training. It cut it well, maybe it did. but I can't imagine it paid back. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe it was just in relation to me. Maybe it paid back with my better quality <laughs> colleagues. But um, I ended up spending seven or eight years, and as that suggests, I not only did I enjoy it, I learned a ton. We, i gone. I feel it looks when I look back at it now. I feel like I was on a training course every two, three months. Commercially, it made you very astute. They were very focused on numbers very focused on making operational, what they called operational execution excellence, which was a lot of process-driven activity measured clearly in the marketplace by the workforce. And so I think it gave me some really good values around that. It also taught me fun in the workplace is important. Coke had a great culture on having fun. You know, so, you know, all your colleagues would be together on a Friday after work which I really enjoyed, you know, they also did some organized corporate activity, which was genuinely fun as well. So for a corporate company, they were, it was actually fun. It wasn't too contrived. Met some great people there. And interestingly, that, that's what led me to Just Eat. So uh, my last job at Coke was I ended up uh, leading the restaurant uh, business for them here in the UK and, and Ireland. And a colleague of mine in Denmark contacted me and said, hey, there's this, I remember, I remember his description. There's this crazy Danish entrepreneur that's building this local business here in Denmark called Just Eat, and it's kind of three years old. They've got nine employees, and they're, they're building it out of Jutland, and um, he, he, he said to me, look, he's coming to London, I probably was for a restaurant thing or conference, I can't remember, and he said, would you mind you know, just giving him an hour, sharing with him the restaurant landscape in the UK, and how it's shaping, and giving him some insight from a Coca-Cola perspective on the market? I said yeah yeah you know it's like you, know, you have a colleague and I, I liked him He was a great colleague and I said to him, yeah of course I'll do it no problem I'll host him and I'll show him around a bit and I ended up taking him for dinner and it was Jesper Buch who was the sort of leading co-founder of Just Eats and, and a fantastic entrepreneur and, and um, I liked him straight away although he, he, he was definitely um, he was definitely sort of a colorful entrepreneur and he um he had big aspirations and ambitions for what, what didn't seem a lot in reality when, when you scratch <laughs> below, below the surface. But at the end of that dinner, he said to me, listen, why don't you start Just eating the UK with me and, and we do it together? And I was a bit taken aback. I, was, you know, I wasn't looking for anything. I just got married and had a mortgage. And I, said to, I remember saying to him, you must be fucking joking. I actually swore, uh, so forgive the bad language, <laughs> but I said to him, you must be joking. And, um, and he said to me, no, I'm serious. I'm going to build this company, not just in Denmark. I want to take it to the UK. I think we'd work really well together and et cetera. And I said to him, no. And then I sort of went home. And I remember I spoke to my wife. I just newly married. I said, I've met this Danish entrepreneur. And I think he's a bit crazy, but <laughs> it's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant idea. And obviously, I'd been working in the restaurant market for about two, three years for Coke. So I had some pretty good insight into how the market was structured. And I had that moment like a lot of entrepreneurs do. I went, if I don't do this, someone else is going to do it. And I said to my wife, I'm worried I might regret it for the rest of my life because it's just a brilliant idea. And I said, if we don't do it, I think someone will because the UK market is just perfect for this. Little did I know at the time, obviously, the model was probably perfect for lots of markets across the globe that we eventually expanded into. So that was the August of 2005. And by the December 2005, I'd agreed to resign. I resigned from Coke. And signed a deal with Jesper to start the UK. And on March the 1st, 2006, Jesper and I launched the UK business of Just Eat. And and that's how I got into Just Eat.
0: Wow. And and back then, it didn't obviously exist in the UK when you co-founded the UK business. Did did you have, I mean, how did you feel, you know, coming from Coca-Cola, having a great career, coming with a great salary to probably a pretty low salary, you know, talk me through how you felt. I felt
1: a mixture. I said, okay, let me tell you. On March 1st, 2006, I was super excited, dressed in a suit, walking into Independent Takeaways in Canary Wharf, uh, East <laughs> India Dock Road, who threw me out. He literally threw me out and said he thought I was the VAT man. So I went from feeling at like 9 o'clock in the morning, super excited, you know, here we go, we're starting a business together. Yes, it's going to be super exciting. So at about 11.30 thinking, oh, this might be a bit harder than I thought, and it's not as glamorous as I thought it was (laughs) going to (laughs) be. And then then I went home that night thinking that was tough. But it was interesting, actually, Timo, because going back to being process and data-driven a little bit, it was quite interesting in the sense that I did 12 customer calls that day into independent restaurants in E14. 11 restaurant owners said no to me, and one said yes. And I did five presentations. So my ratio was 12 calls, five presentations, one yes. And I went home that night, not satisfied with one yes, but I made a promise to myself that I'm not going to go home any day until I've got one yes. I I can't. We've got to get momentum and we've got to start building critical mass of restaurants in in every postcode and I'm not going to go home. And some nights I did literally go home at midnight, one o'clock. Uh, smelling of kebabs as my wife often <laughs> reminds, often reminds me going, you know, used to come on smell of takeaway constantly for years on end. But the, the, um, the funny thing was that ratio didn't change a lot, it improved slightly, but actually one of the things as we start to build a sales team, I used to challenge them on is look, my ratio here is 12 visits, six presentations and I get one signing. And I can say, so I can say if you measure your activity and productivity where you make sure you do 12 visits you have six customer meetings that involve a full presentation. I'm highly confident that you'll get one signing every day. So, and that became a very good model to build and scale a sales team because then I knew if this, the better salespeople obviously would be doing better than my ratio, the, the ones that needed training would be doing worse. But by measuring that simple activity, I was able to scale a sales team over that following 12 months very effectively and understand how productive they were being. So that ratio, you know, if you speak to anyone who worked in Just Eat the first three, four years, when I was a CEO, they used, I always used to, whenever new starters, I'd sit and them, listen, my ratio is 12, six and one, you've got to be better than that. There's no, and, and, and of course, the best ones were a lot better. But what it meant, it sort of set a benchmark and it also set some clarity around what good performance looked like. So that was kind of an important insight, which came very early and didn't change a lot actually in the early years up until including the index ventures series a round in 2009 but what was interesting for me was at the end of the first month i'll never forget this as long as i live the net turnover of just Eat in the uk was 36 pounds i will never forget it because yes yes but i was sat in the office office we were sat in his flat in canary wharf um which was our also happened to be our office and um, yes we got there. i said oh yes but how's it been let's look at the numbers so we're going through the numbers and i was like so our net turnover is 36 pounds you went yeah and I never forget, because I actually, I never forget it because I was like, I was like, oh, shit. But uh, one a month of my life, and I'd literally honestly worked my backside off. And I was like, mm. we've made 36 pounds. And I remember Jesper going, you no, 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 no. It's actually worse than that, because 36 pounds between two of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we ended, up, we ended up in all bar one in um, Canary Wharf. I know that place. Uh. Yeah, we ended up all by one in to go having a few pints to, to sink our misery. But what was interesting was like, I'm sure like your journey at Glistow and Timo, it, the business did start to grow quite quickly. So I remember, I always remember the first three months, it was 36 pounds net turnover month one, then it went to 250. And by month three, we had something like 700 pounds. And so you could see, you know, the growth started to come quite quickly. And then when we got to 2000 pounds net turnover, which I think was around month five, we started saying, okay, that's that's one person's salary. <laughs> 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 that's how we thought. We you know, we were so bootstrapped. So we said, oh, now we can pay one salary. And for the first two, three years we built just very organically like that, which was probably too conservative. We should of course should have raised capital earlier and grown much quicker. But you know, we, we were you know, we were a bit naive as first time entrepreneurs, and I guess, you know, you don't know what you don't know.
0: And then between two thousand and six and two thousand and nine, I think you bootstrapped and how, how much has it grown between those years?
1: It grew a lot. I mean, we, we had a couple of tough moments, so we ran out of cash, and I think it was month six or month nine, I always forget. Oh, wow. But we ran out of cash, that was pretty tough. I think Jesper was finding it pretty hard then, um, hard going. As you know what it's like as an entrepreneur, when the money's getting tight, it's, mm-hmm. unless you've been there, it's really hard to, you know, when because you, you're living it, you're living and breathing this, right? When I look back on my 12 years at Just Eat, they, they feel like 13 years, whatever it was. It feels like dog years. They, mm. I just I feel like I've, I probably haven't. And I know lots of people have tough jobs, but there were years that definitely felt like dog years. And those early years were pretty brutal. haven't said that, you know, so we'd had that moment we ran out of cash in, in the first year, which was tough. Then we had a big platform failure in year two. And I thought, oh, this could be the end. And then, but the underlying thing, which I never lost sight of, was the business just kept growing. And the reality was, every city that we went to, where we lit up Just Eat, the same pattern kept emerging. If you got five restaurants of each major cuisine category in every postcode, the consumers came and they stayed and they never left. That became a very powerful sort of cohort of data to look at and say, hang around, there's this many restaurants in the UK, there's this many postcodes, there's this many potential consumers. If we do the hard yards, the first three, four, five years and build this critical mass of supply and demand, this business looks like a pretty sustainable business with a very strong, loyal customer base. And and I never lost sight of that. So we were, you know, if you ask people who were working with me in those, where I probably added the most value, I think to Just Eat was probably in those first years, because. I was very single-minded and driven around that, and 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 I made sure every year that we were really ambitious and hit that supply and demand, because I knew that was a flywheel that was driving a lot of growth. And so yeah, and then and then we did the Series A index round in 2009, which was to launch our first major UK TV campaign, and, and, and index ventures were great, Danny Reimer, Ben Holmes, they, they really bought into what we'd done. I think they probably thought these guys were a bit scrappy, but you know, they, they build a pretty good business. They have a good understanding of how to do it. We probably needed a lot of polishing as entrepreneurs, but we, we were definitely very driven and very determined. And I think they, you know they had a, they got a pretty good deal as it turned out, but good for Index and uh, their capital was invaluable because it helped us professionalise, scale the company. We did our first TV test in the Granada region, which is the northwest region of England, and um, we saw very quickly that TV really helped grow our business on the consumer side. No surprise, but the side effect was it also helped on the supply side. So restaurant owners seeing our TV ad created a lot of inbound for restaurants. By then, we were charging restaurant quite significant fees to join because the value proposition was there. And so that became, you know, another flywheel of engine of growth. And we started to understand television as a channel to grow our business. And I think by 2012, we were, you know, certainly well ahead of our time in understanding economic metric modeling for television. We had a very clear understanding of how to do it, when to do it, what time to put ads on, what kind of programs. So yeah, we became a pretty lean machine, lean mean machine between I think 2009 and 2012 that sort of, we were in pretty hyper growth mode then. The company business was growing like hundreds of percent year on year. I remember feeling in 2011, this is not a question of now will just be a success. It's just a question of how big and how good a job we can do at building a proper company. That I remember thinking that in 2011.
0: And what what triggered that thought?
1: Just the size and scale. I think at the time we had around 10,000 restaurants in the UK. We were probably turning over at the time, Timo, uh, in the UK. I think just the UK then was about eighty odd percent of just each turnover. I think we were probably in Denmark, Ireland. I'd launched Ireland in 2009, I think. So that was Denmark, Ireland, UK. Probably one or two other, Holland, which was an acquisition. Uh, can't remember. Say we we're in four, five, six countries. Doesn't matter. Just just the UK was probably eighty odd percent, if not not eighty five percent of the turnovers. And you know we were turning over. I think we went through the ten million pound turnover which at the time, net turnover, our turnover, our, our, our GMV would have been you know well north of 100 million mm. and, um, and growing at, I think, 300 odd percent. And I just felt like we were nailing it. I thought we had a good team. We had a really tight team. We were very executionally focused. We were all working crazy hours, but still. But I don't know. I just felt we got good investors in index. They're adding a lot of value. Felt really supported by them. So, yeah, no, that was probably, it was probably a culmination of factors. Also, the fact that television was working for us and you could see the consumers like grow it, come into the chat platform. And the other key measure was we were ten times bigger than than our nearest competitor, which was Hungry House. We were three times bigger two years earlier, and we it just felt like we were winning, you know. Um, and the momentum you know, was like it's very difficult as an entrepreneur to build momentum. Mm. Once you build momentum into your business, it's hard to get it going. I often describe it as like pushing a steam train. But once you get that steam train moving, it's the the power of the inertia is is very powerful.
0: And at what stage did you break even? So we could have broken
1: even in 2011, but we rightly carried on investing. Um, we doubled down on expanding the team internationally. We doubled down on expanding television campaigns. And we doubled down on, on sort of scaling up and building the management team. So we carried on investing. So we could have broken even in, in 2011. Uh, by 2012, we were breaking even, even though we had all the channels almost at maximum. Which mm-hmm. tells you the power of the business model. I think I still think this is, it just eats one of the most beautiful business models. Certainly in that period it was it was it was it was a great model. And in 2012, even though we we're pretty much at max, we we broke even. We did the series C in 2012 with Vitruvian Partners, a private equity house in London, where we raised thirty-five million, predominantly to look at MA in the sector. And we ended up never deploying that $35 million. So that was, you know, we, just because the company started generating money and, and stuff. But that wasn't, you know, we, we were, as entrepreneurs, we could have done better funding rounds. And I don't mean that as in, I think the investors we got, we had Greylock in our Series B and then Vitruvian in our Series C. And Redpoint came in as well in Series B alongside Greylock. Our investors and our board up to our IPO were fantastic. I was, they were really great. But I, I think the deals we did as entrepreneurs, I, I think there was, we didn't quite, yeah, we didn't get the right um, value exchange, but you know, it like, you know, life's, it was a good journey and, and, and no regrets. But um, I feel, I think if you look at the, the returns <laughs> that those guys got, I think we, we were, just, it was a pretty, was pretty good for our investors, but like I say, good for them.
0: Yeah. yeah. And before you IPO'd, you then became the global CEO. How, how did this happen?
1: Yeah, it was a it's a it's a very grand uh, title that was bestowed. Yeah, no, what what the reality was, Timo, it was two things. So we had a we had a hired CEO that came in when Jesper kind of stepped away from the full time day to day called Klaus, and 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 Klaus was a was a was a really good guy, pretty eccentric, and but he um he I think he was in for about four years, I can't remember something like that. And and so what happened was it was kind of a weird dynamic in the sense that we had this sort of like, in VidiCom's global CEO. And I was running the UK business as, as, as managing director, I think my title was, or was a UK CEO, can't remember, doesn't matter. And the reality was, Just Eat UK, I think it was, might have been 90. It was 85 or 90%. <laughs> I remember it being 85%, 90% of Just Eat's business. Klaus left the company, I think, in Christmas, or was it January? 20, either Christmas of 2012 or the January of 2013, I can't quite remember. It was around that period. And so it, it became quite a natural step because I was, I think the board sort of thought, well, we've got this guy who seems to be doing an okay job building the UK, which is like 85%, let's say it was around that level of of just each global turnover and, uh, and business. I was crazily ambitious and driven and, and I definitely would always, you know, want to take on more responsibility Go back to my rugby analogy. I always kind of wanted to be captains of teams and and lead things. And so, you know, I I was I was very clear in my communication at the board. Look, I'm I'm up for the challenge. So in, in January 2013, you know, I became what was then. <laughs> I always sort of smile at job titles because it, it's always a bit global CEO. In, you know, in, the truth was, Just Eat was largely sort of an internationalizing business then, for sure, but it was still predominantly from a turnover perspective, a UK and Danish company. Yeah, no, and, and then they made that permanent probably a few months later. And so, you know, and I look, I loved it. I mean, for me, it was, you know, it was a, I learned so much in that year. You know, we, we launched, I think, in, in Latin America. We started to scale up in Brazil, for sure, uh, which I really enjoyed. Western Europe, we started to try and professionalize and make our, uh, execution excellence in outlets, more consistent, Start to think about, you know, an IPO. So it was just a really interesting time professionally for me. I was just learning a lot. The interesting thing for me, I've never negotiated really my salary. So even when I become CEO, I just didn't care. I just said, I, I, I just want to do, I just love working here. You know, I don't really care. I was so naive. I, you know, I could have, I should probably like, you know, I negotiated the life out of that, but I didn't bother. I just didn't, I thought, you know, people will pay you. I've always had this sort of sense that, good boards will always pay people what they're genuinely worth. And yeah, there's always a bit of a haggle, but I kind of like to think I trust people and I always, you know, maybe it's a British thing, but I never really wanted to get into sort of conversations about, negotiating stuff like that. So I, I, I just sort of want to do the job really. So it was never, you know, it's like, I think when you're building a company as an entrepreneur, it's not, it's not about money. You know, mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest misconceptions about entrepreneurs is they're financially driven. And most entrepreneurs I've met over the years, are totally, uh, yeah. not driven at all by that. That's I can honestly point. say that never one minute did I ever think about what am my shares worth or what am I, I couldn't care less. It was for me, it was about building something. I love building things. I love working with really interesting people I like doing difficult things and proving that wrong. So it was always in the challenge of building something where I found my reward. And, of course, there's, a, there's always if things turn out successfully, there's a lovely side effect that, you know, you make some money. But I think for most entrepreneurs I've met anyway, that's, that's never the, the the primary driver. I think it's the biggest misconception I, I hear about entrepreneurs.
0: Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And why did you IPO?
1: Probably three big reasons. So firstly, we wanted to do some pretty big M&A um, and consolidate the global market for, for, for online takeaway. And, and I think that thesis was a great one because, you know, once you build these businesses in markets, it's very difficult, as, it's, as has been shown. If you, look at, if you look at Just Eat in the UK, Uber Eats and Deliveroo have plunged literally billions and billions mm. and billions of pounds into trying to disrupt Just Eat's position.
0: It's incredible, yeah.
1: And if you look at the reality of Just Eat's position in the UK, Still, still very strong, still clear market leader, <laughs> so um, and still has a very strong market share. So it tells you the strength of the model, and it tells you the strength of the product. So, well, the reason why I reference that is you can see why M and therefore is relevant because if you want to build a global business, if there's a strong incumbent in the market, it's bloody difficult to shift them with this kind of business model. So we uh, that was the first reason. So that access to the strategy to consolidate the global market. Secondly, you know, obviously as a public company It's probably less true today than it was seven or eight years ago. But in 2013, 2014, you know, access to capital for the public markets is clearly more efficient and it was uh, would give better returns. So we thought, you know, that access to capital, the flexibility of access to capital made a ton of sense for us as a sort of highly acquisitive and expansive uh, international company. And, and then the third thing we thought, well, this model is going to be very cash generative over time and it probably sits well, therefore, in the public markets. And I think. Um, probably a fourth one actually just each business model is very predictable. So it mm-hmm. actually as a business model sits nicely. So, you know, investors don't like shocks and for the people who understand the model well of in food and food delivery, because of the equations I was talking to earlier about right, the predictability of the consumers once you acquire them, it actually is not a difficult business model. I don't think I can honestly say, I think from pretty much year two onwards, our projections, if you ask our board, if you ask index, I don't think we we're ever more than 1%, 2% out in our budget planning. Mm. Um, that's how predictable the model was. And so, and so we thought it would sit nicely as a, as a public company. I think largely that all those theses proved to be correct. Um, the downside was, which I didn't anticipate, was we lost all our board pretty much because as investor directors, of course, they become very conflicted when you become a public company. So a lot of our great long standing investors, we had Ben Holmes on our board for seven years. He was brilliant and the index team. Laurel Bowden at uh, 83 North, well, was then Greylock, stepped away. And we lost some, uh, I think, I think did Mike Risman at Vitrugin Stone. He might have stayed on a bit. But we, we basically lost a lot of board expertise, literally almost overnight. And I think as a first-time entrepreneur, probably the biggest, if you ask me, you know, what was the biggest mistake or my biggest thing, I'd, if I've done differently, I think the mistake would have been that as a board – We lost a lot of talent from around the board table, and I honestly don't think Just Eat replaced it. And I, you know, certainly as a CEO, feel pretty culpable for that, which is why I was sort of saying to you earlier, you know, about, you know, the Gusto board looks to me like a really great board, and you've built in a phenomenal job as an entrepreneur being very thoughtful around that, because I wasn't, and I kind of let that happen to the company, and I'm not sure, sorry, that's my concern, I'm not sure the company ever recovered, actually, uh, in terms of the quality of the board. I think we tried to address it, but I don't think we ever quite ended up getting it right. So, And I think in the end, that really did end up hurting the company. So, yeah, I kind of regret that. Probably would have done that differently or would have done that differently with hindsight.
0: Oh, It's really, really fascinating insight. And I mean, you know, you ipo would for, what, like 1.5 billion? So one of the largest ever UK IPOs. And how did it impact the culture and the leadership team and the team? I was pretty fanatical about our culture. So I, I was deliberately a bit provocative and colorful
1: with our board and the bankers about, I'm not going to let this change what well, Just Eat is. Just Eat had a very irreverent culture. It had a very strong sense of fun, hard work, togetherness, sharing information widely and openly. And of course, all the bankers and lawyers wanted to stifle the life out of that um no disrespect but they kind of did and um and i just didn't care I i'm not letting that happen i'm the ceo here and i'm not let one thing i will not compromise is this company's culture because i think it really drives performance and makes it a great place to work and i'm not going to let just eat change because when we built just eat in the early days remember yes when i was saying let's just build a company that's authentic and feels real to the people that have built it and is not one of those sort of corporate companies, so we, we really tried to let people be themselves in the workplace, whatever that, that looked like and I think we were a very broad church and I was really proud of that uh, at don 't one there was some risk with it because you know some of the humor sometimes was surely um, a bit racy, but I, I just think it was what it was was authentic and in the, and the likeness of the people that worked there and that I think that made it a really great different place to work so the ipo didn 't actually i think largely change the company because our, we as a leadership team we wouldn 't let it and you know, I remember saying to the board, was we had, we had these sort of non-executive board independents join at IPO and, um, oh, they used to kill me. I just thought, oh, why have we done this? Because <laughs> these people were just like, you know, surely, you know, they, I think honestly, I, I think for the first two years, some of those directors still thought that Just Eat was like, you know, some Michelin star restaurant because they'd be like, well, why haven't we got this one in Mayfair? And I just remember, Geez. <laughs> but anyway, you know, that, you know, there you go. We, I, but that was my response once a CEO and I go back to the compliment I paid you, Timo, getting your board composite right is so important. And I just, I don't feel like I, as a CEO, I did get that right. But anyway, so yeah, and I was militant around that. So I just, the, for example, so the, the bankers used to say, look, you are you, a public company now, you can't share information as widely. And I said, well, we're going to have to find a way. Because how can people have be motivated and have understanding of the things we're asking them to do and the effort we're asking them to make if they don't have the proper context of information and data? So we, we you know, we were pretty challenging and, and strangely, as most things in life, when you don't accept what someone's telling you and challenge them to come up with a better answer or a more creative one, we were able to do it. And, and we found ways of still sharing information widely without compromising, you know, our you know, capital markets, regulations and rules. And we found ways of making sure that our people stayed well informed. And, and as to the culture, you know, the one thing I definitely learned along the way was, I see, that you know, as you and I both know, culture is not what's written on the wall or what's written on an annual report. Culture is absolutely, I I always look at how the leadership team is behaving and however the leadership team is behaving, that is what the culture of that company is. Whatever they say, whatever they'd like it to be aspirationally, just go and sit in an office and watch the leadership team behave. And however they behave in that day, over, or over a period of days, if you have the time, you will be able to tell what the real culture of that company is. And so I, you know, I, I tried to set the example, and I think my, the executive team did the same, where we just didn't change. And our culture remained, therefore, intact. Um, one of the things we did every year was have a world party at Just Eat. I remember some of the public independent board directors going, you can't spend like a million <laughs> quid on a two-day. we got every employee from every market around the world. So wow. I think one year we had 2,200 employees In the Downs tent, we had to hire from Glastonbury. Um, (laughs) And I remember we'd fly everyone in, every employee, irrespective of job grade, like every employee in. And um, so we had 2,200 people or something in a tent in the Downs tent, because I was the (laughs) only tent big enough in the UK at the time. And I remember the board going, but that's going to, I think the whole event cost like a million quid. And we'd have one day professional agenda and then one day, like what we called the Justy Jam, which was our culture, spending time together sharing stories from the markets we'd have food from every market that we operated in in different tents you could go and eat in and just getting to know each other as a team. So it was like half and half professional and um, sort of cultural time. And I remember the board going to me, I think it was 2015 or so, going, oh, you can't as a public CEO advocate a million pound on a, <laughs> what they, they called as a party. And I said to them, I remember just looking at the board and saying, this is the best money this company invests every year. And I'd be more than happy to look at any investor in the eye and tell them this is what we do. So, you know, so yeah, so I remember though that, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff that stuff did was a bit of a fight on times to keep to keep the lights on if you like on all the cultural activity but in the end you've just got to be i think as a ceo sometimes you know you've got to remind yourself that nobody knows the company as well as you do and you know no matter how big and smart or how fancy their title is or how many public independent non-executive board positions they hold they just don't know what you know about your company and and you've just got to hold the line sometimes
0: Very powerful. And you build a high performance leadership team. What did you learn about, you know, running leadership teams? If I look at our team
1: back in 2010, we probably looked and sounded the same to some extent across the exec team at Just Eat, if we're really honest. And I think what I learned was very quickly that, you know, diversity really does drive not just performance, but it drives perspective. It drives insight. It drives different creativity. And it obviously brings I think really interesting experience culturally to a company. So we did some really innovative stuff around, around hiring around the exec team around diversity during my time as CEO that I look back on. I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it because it was the right thing to do, but I definitely look back and think, yeah, that was, that was, that was, a good thing to do. I think the most important thing I probably learned about how to create high performance though was, you know, I, I read that book, good to great uh, a long time ago. And, um, I never get away from the model in that book. And I love the model where it is, I think it's how you create a high performing team, whether I think I always remember the, the diagram is a circle at the top that says, I think sharing information and the next circle to the right is understanding. Then the one at the bottom says, motivation and the way the circle goes around as a flywheel is if you share information widely that leads to understanding that drives motivation and in the middle then sits high performing teams Mm. and i always try to remind myself that you know whatever you do around people making sure that 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 flow was not blocked up so in the activity that we're trying to drive every day across the teams that that understanding in each area was as good as it could be was a pretty important job for me as a CEO um, when leading sort of an executive team. And then the second part for me was about trusting people. You know, I think I've seen some CEOs sometimes that they, they wanna be the smartest person in the room, that they, all the ideas got to go through them and all the decisions have got to go through them. And I think that is such an insecure weakness that slows down scalability and actually, and actually stifles. Mm. It, it actually slows the team from becoming a high performing team. Because if you've hired really talented people, then you have to trust them. And if you trust them and you truly trust them and you show that through your decision-making, your empowerment, through your listening rather than telling, through your questioning rather than sort of directing, then I think what that slowly creates over time is a glue around the executive team where it's a very flat culture where everyone feels they can trust and challenge each other because they're trusted to make them drive their own area. So I really tried... To remind myself all the time that these are really these are talented people that are here for a great reason. And if I my job as a CEO is not to definitely not to tell them what to do. My job as a CEO is to listen to them, help guide their decision making, and always be like a really good rugby or or football manager. When things go wrong, I take the blame Mm. as a CEO. Then it's my then I'll then I take the blame. And and when things go well, it's all credit to them. And I always tried as a CEO to remind myself, you know, when things are going well and in the public markets and bankers are laughing at your crap jokes, you know, you, you, to remind myself that, you know, that's that's superficial and not real. But what is real is, you know, remembering that when you have responsibility to try and build a great company and work and, and make the best of, of developing great people, that as a good CEO, what you really do is is is, is give all credit to them as much as you can. And at the same time, when things go wrong, you step into that responsibility and say, you know, I'll take that one. And I think whether you're a rugby coach or a football coach or a CEO, that's just good leadership. And you should do that as well, sincerely. So you can't do it going, oh, I'll take the blame for that. But they like, oh, but not really. You know, I think you've got to do it with a real sense of, you know, you are the CEO, the buck stops with you. You know, when things go well around you, it's, it's down to the endeavors of the team and what great work they've done. And when things don't go well, it's because, uh, you know, myself as a CEO, what could I have done differently? Uh, and I'll take that one. And I think I think if you get those two or three things right as a CEO, I think you've got a pretty good chance of of creating a pretty high performing team.
0: Really powerful. Thanks. And... You know, since the IPO in 2014 and the time you left in 2017, the valuation has jumped, and you guys have, you know, grown so much and you were hugely successful. But at the same time, you also started to see those new players emerge. And as you said, you know, dumping billions of of pounds into marketing. How did you feel about the landscape? How do you feel about today's, you know, food wars?
1: Yeah, I think like in a way, way, the way I look at it is, you know, Wow, well, what an industry that we we in a small way help build, right? I mean, so in, I, I'm I'm a, I'm an, I'm an excited and interested observer of how the market has evolved, and there's some great companies in the space now. And I think, you know, I think there'll continue to be new companies in the space. By the way, <laughs> I, I think the food, you know, the food growth and evolution of the market will continue over the next ten years. I don't think it's by any means as is, is it reaching maturity just yet. I think there's going to be some really interesting things that happens in the next three four years. I kind of think that we were heavily involved in sort of. I was probably involved in sort of stage one and a little bit of stage two, and now we're probably moving into stage three in terms of if you have, you know, sort of, you know, kitchens now um, which are delivering menus direct to consumers with their own delivery. You have vertically integrated business models in in certain specific food categories, whether it be Chinese, Indian, or pizza. So the markets continue to evolve at pace. So I, I find it exciting to look at the companies that were built. If I look at my time as a CEO, I should have got into delivery um, earlier. Uh, if I look back at that, I think it was the context for me at the time was we just become probably a year old public company. There was a lot of pressure on hitting our numbers and profitability because, you know, one of the big things we'd done was talk about you know we're very predictable and to establish ourselves as a public company, we had to show discipline around hitting numbers. Mm-hmm. So I remember being uh, tentative around that because I knew it was a very expensive model, but I, nevertheless, you know, we we did get into you know delivery. I think. Quite aggressively from 2016 onwards but i wish i'd done that probably a year or two earlier maybe even acquired you know we acquired skip the dishes for example which i think was a great piece of m&a but we you know anyway so there's always things you might you would, might have done differently um but interestingly i think the last thing i'd probably say around i see the market evolving is that you know i think from a long-term perspective i think food and the consumer market is going to be probably one of the biggest growth areas the next 10 years i think you know all of us as consumers are eating food and delivery food and authentic food more and more supplied digitally through different platforms and so the occasions and how quick the market will grow underneath these business models is going to make room for a lot of good successful companies and i think so having a sort of mature attitude to that is a pretty important way to grow a company, but also understand what is your key offering? What is your core market and being really disciplined around your core market and then identifying what are the complementary markets for your business model that you probably want to get into. Cause it's very easy when you're building a food delivery model thinking we've got to be in every area. And of course you can't, you can't be in every area. Um, so you have to be disciplined in the end. But understanding clearly what are those strategic priorities that you want to nail and then really aggressively going after them in a very disciplined way and probably only one or two priorities, not more than that, and then executing really well is going to be the difference between being an average and a great company in the sector. But, yeah, the market will definitely continue to evolve. It's a, you know, food is, I think, soft SoftBank or one of their sort of you know, whether they call it mega, mega trends or whatever. <laughs> it was terrible uh, no. Hyperbole, that I read it every so often, but, but the, you know, it is nevertheless a, a huge industry and a, and, and a fast growing one because it's just so for the modern consumer, you know, these platforms are just just give a fantastic experience because they just broaden your choice. They, they're naturally inherently convenient. And thirdly, they're introducing you to, food choices and we all love food It's one of the things we all enjoy in life on a mm-hmm. daily basis. It's kind of a universal uh, enjoyment for everyone. they are introducing the choices you just don't know exist locally. So, you know, they're just great platforms fundamentally.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's super, super exciting to see, you know, what's, what's happening in the next couple of years. And so in 2017, you left, why did you decide to leave?
1: Yeah, it was a difficult one, Timo, for me personally, that I, I, I'll probably always, there always be a part of me actually that probably looks back, you know, there's lots of mistakes you make as a first time entrepreneur. I think how we did our fundraising, we were a bit naive in things like valuations along the way, sort of how disciplined I was around um, and how the burden of responsibility I felt as a public CEO for the first time. I was like, I think I was a FTSE 250 CEO when I was like 36 or 37 years old. And I, so wow. I felt, I felt a really big responsibility to deliver on what we'd said, our promises almost to the point where I, probably took my eye off the ball a little bit and I'm strategically because I just got too focused on making sure we delivered our numbers mm. um, in the markets uh, for a year or two. And then for me, after sort of 12 and a half years, wherever it was, I, it's always a difficult one, but I, I think it's always good to be frank. I had, I had a lot of personal issues at home. So, you know, I'd, I'd, i probably spent all my, thir- well, sorry, it was, I started Just Eat when I was 29 in the UK and I'd spent all mm. my 30s, building Justine. I was probably 41 at the time. And we, I think I was on, yeah, my son was probably just a couple of years old and I found myself, I'm not embarrassed to tell you, I found myself living in a hotel on my own for about six weeks. And uh, for anyone who's experienced that, it's pretty miserable. Mm -hmm. And I sort of remember sat there thinking, you know, you've got all these people telling you what a great success you've built and what an amazing list you are and that you are. I'm thinking, I don't, I don't feel so amazing and successful. I'm sort Mm -hmm. of sat here on my own in a hotel room. And, you know, I remember thinking someone else is going to bring up my kid. And I remember thinking, I've got something wrong here. I've got something really wrong. And I think it was the summer or autumn of 2016. And I thought, this just doesn't work. I've kind of gone and killed myself for 11, 12 years, building this company. And it was a great journey. And it gave me so much back and I loved every minute, but I've really taken my eye off the ball at home and I just didn't have the maturity, Timo. I think, frankly, to go to the board and admit it. And I, I kind of wanted, oh, you just get on with it. You know, you, you've got to, you've got mm. responsibilities as a CEO. You've just got to make it work. And I tried to make it work for about three, four, five months at the back of 2016. Mm. And then things started to fall apart at home in a bad way. And I thought, I just can't let this happen. You know, <laughs> you know, like I said, I'm not embarrassed to tell anyone. You know, I sort of, I, I love my wife, and I, and I wanted to be. A really great dad and I grew up as a in a single parent home and I just didn't want that and mm. and um, I thought I just got to put this right wherever it takes I've got to put this right so in the Christmas of 2016 I just said to the chairman of Just Eat I can't do this anymore it just doesn't work I'm traveling all over the world I'm 20 days of the month in hotels all around the world doing stuff it's just not compatible and I can't make it work and with hindsight, what I've done differently is i have probably would have gone the board or and frankly I think the board did a pretty poor job, if I'm honest, with how mm. supportive they were of me in terms of emotion. I don't think they knew, I don't think they showed the experience and maturity of compassion to the sort of think, how can we help this guy here? He's given 12 years of his life. How do we mm-hmm. help him through a difficult period? They kind of were like, well, just keep smashing the numbers in for us. I just, I just thought honestly, that, and my old man, my dad said to me, he said, son, whatever your job, you, whenever, whatever you think you're doing, I promise you, these guys, the company will never love you back. Um, or the business will never love you back. And, he said, "Look, you've got to you've got to get your priorities straight." And um, it was great advice. And I, I saw. So in the January of 2017, I said, to "The board, look, I'm done. I want out. I can't do this anymore." I, I remember the chairman saying, "You know, do you want to go on all day and think about it." So I went on all day and thought about it. Came back even more determined. And so I resigned, and that was it. So in Jan 2017, I stepped down. The board were kind enough to say, "We'll stay on as a non-exec for a year." that just felt weird um Mm -hmm. (laughs) I kind of regret that in the end as well Uh, but I think looking back on it what I've done differently is I probably would have sat with the board and said look can I take I've been at this for 12 years I think I had probably not many holidays in that entire period of time and that was my own fault by the way I don't know what else to blame but myself you know Mm -hmm. I sort of demanded more of myself than I probably should have done i certainly should have been more thoughtful about what the impact I was having at home and um I guess in the end, I was quite selfishly driven entrepreneurially. I think I wish I'd just said, can I have three months off and, 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 and can I see where I, where you are and where I am? And I think I'd probably, for the company, if you look out how then things evolved after I left at Just they hired a CEO, that CEO then got fired after a year or 18 months or something like that, I can't remember, or left anyway after a year, which is pretty disruptive. And I never worked out. I think the culture got badly damaged in that process. I think they never, in the end, they never had another CEO after that. They ended up with an interim CEO and they ended up merging the business with takeaway.com um, obviously about six months ago. So I don't think they ever really figured out how to transition and, and bring in a permanent CEO. And I don't that, and by the way, I don't think that's anything to do with me, but I think it was more to do with the fact as a board, they just struggled to get it right. And I think with hindsight, I think for both I'm not saying I would have maybe if I'd had three or six months off I would have just come back and said look guys I'm definitely there's other things to life but probably as a board that would have been a smarter way for them to handle okay. it and I definitely felt if I'm blunt I definitely felt a little bit like Christ I've given 12 and a bit years of my life here this is probably the first time in that entire period it was the first time in that period that I'd come to them and said look I need some help I'm really struggling and at home and I can't make this work very well I, I personally felt they weren't that particularly supportive in terms of coming up with creative ideas or ways mm-hmm. that I could help me to figure it out but they, but you know well, that's life and definitely no regrets uh, from the you know from leaving because you know it was you know now things are great at home that time that year off I had after just enabled me to get everything back on track and that's, amazing. Try and that's the most for some thing so n- no regrets
0: yeah, I'm super happy to hear, David. That's that's the most important thing, and you know what an incredible story. Now, really, really happy for you. And I think today you own a rugby club. Yeah. Sounds extremely exciting. Yeah, I want yeah, to hear yeah, about yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, like I said at the start, you know, being a Welshman, and you know, <laughs> we, are, we are pretty passionate about rugby. So it's my it's it's literally the team that's local to my dad's house. My dad lives 300 meters away. From the ground it's the team that you know has been local to me since I was a boy so yeah no it's um, there's four professional rugby teams in Wales and yep I'm running one of them and it's it Incredible. is absolutely yeah it's it's everything you'd expect it to be it's it's a real pleasure uh, I love every second of it it's it's also really difficult because it's t- it's a turnaround in effect uh, from a sporting perspective so it's a real challenge but it's really interesting and a different and a different and a different sort of leadership. Um, opportunity but nevertheless one i've you know I'm, I'm, I'm it's definitely been a great tonic over the last couple of years <laughs> it's good and it's good fun as you can probably tell
0: I'm, I'm sure it is yeah and your family must be so enormously proud of you that's amazing
1: yeah my brothers mostly take the mick out of me but you know, <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably healthy and um, i think mum's probably mum's probably a little bit proud because I think she thought I was going to turn out to be a geography teacher. Not that there's anything wrong with being a geography teacher. <laughs> no, sure, sure. I think, she, I think she probably looks at me and says, oh, he, he didn't turn out to be a complete uh, uh, disappointment.